Can a person be a Christian and not be born again? Are there two types of believers? What really makes someone a Christian? Well, stay with us to find out the answer to these questions and more. Welcome. This is the Question and Answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I'm Steve Schwetz, and we hope that you'll be able to join us for the next half hour as we're given insight into the Word of God through the wisdom of Pastor McGee. This program is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Now, getting right to our questions. This first one's from a listener in Kansas City, Missouri. He writes, I once heard Dr. McGee say that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. He then went on to quote scripture to support this statement. Could you explain this view again and repeat the verses you quoted? I do not recall the quotations that I gave at that time. They could be multiplied, of course, and I may be giving you a new set today. But God hates sin. He makes that very clear. And one of the passages, one of the many passages, is Proverbs six sixteen and 19. And here he spells it out. It says, these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Now, the things that God hates, it's quite interesting, is the things that the tongue does, the thing that the hands do, the things that the feet do, and the things that the heart does. In other words, I think scriptures teaches the total depravity of man. Every organ of our body is a sinful organ, by the way. But God hates these things, but God loves the sinner. And, of course, the very familiar verse is, God so loved the world. Does that mean of nature? No, it means it's a cosmos. It means the world of people. And God so loves the world of people that he gave his only begotten son to die for them and That reveals that God loves the sinner. He hates the sin, even the organ of the body that produces the sin. Our next question comes to us from a listener in Wheeler, Michigan, who says, I understand that you believe in the eternal security of the believer. That is, once saved, always saved. But do you mean by this that a person can't backslide? Well, let me say this, that you have certainly misunderstood what I have said because I have made it very clear that a saved person can backslide. But the point that I made was that when a person backslides, they do not lose their salvation. They do lose their fellowship with God, their joy, their service. They lose everything, even, I suppose, lose their reward. All of that they lose But you will recall that Paul said 
that though a man's works be burned up, he shall be saved so as by fire. And the statement I make is that there'll be a lot of people in heaven. They're saved, but they'll smell like they were bought at a fire sale because everything they ever did, they did in the flesh or they had sin in their life. They were in a backslidden condition, but apparently they didn't lose their salvation. Now, let's take a very simple illustration that the Lord Jesus himself gave to us in one of his parables and probably one of the most familiar parables that he ever gave. And that was the parable of the, we call it, the prodigal son. And of course, there are two sons there, but let's just talk about one of them. Now, that boy was a son. That question was never, never brought into doubt. When he got down in a pig pen, The Lord Jesus never said he was a pig. He never said that he was not a son. In fact, he made it clear he was a son. And even down in that pig pen, that boy could say, I will arise and go to my father. Now, he's still a born-again child of God, wasn't he? Because he could call him father. And the reason that he wanted to get out of the pig pen was because he was a child of God, a child of the Father. You see, no pig ever said, I will arise and go to my father, because his old man is down in the pig pen there with him. And he has that nature. He'd never want to leave the pig pen. But the son did. Now, that simply means that a Christian can get into sin but he won't stay in sin. Now, if you can live in sin, you're not a Christian. Let's face it. You never were. You never had the nature of God. A child of God has to say, I'll arise and go to my father. He has to say, I don't like pig pens. He may get in the pig pens. This boy lived it up and got down to the very dregs. You see, He started out well in the far country. He had money. He had friends, fair-weather friends. He was living it up, enjoying the pleasures of sin. But you see, there came a day when he got down the pig pen, and that's always where actually sin will lead you. Sin always has a pig pen for anyone. Take the drunkards today, the many alcoholics that we have today. I remember talking to a man at a mission here in Los Angeles years ago. That man had been one of the leading contractors in Dallas, Texas, became an alcoholic, and they picked him up out of the gutter here in Los Angeles, brought him into the mission. He got out in the pig pen, but he wanted out, (laughs) and he came out, let me tell you. Now, That is the point that I was making, and I hope that I've clarified it in these few brief remarks. We come now to a question from a listener in Dunbar, West Virginia, who writes, Was Paul out of God's will when he went to Jerusalem? May I say to you that it is the judgment of most outstanding expositors that he was out of God's will. I read quite a few of them, and... Most of them take the position that Paul was out of God's will when he went to Jerusalem. 
so that if you take that position, you'll be in good company. But you now if you want to be right, of course, you'd want to go along with me because I don't think that. I think Paul was in the will of God when he went to Jerusalem. To begin with, he was out on this missionary journey where he had collected an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And it was his intention all the way along that he would deliver that with his own hands because he had persecuted the church in Jerusalem and now he wants to bring them assistance and help. Help to people that he probably at one time was responsible for them being in the condition or partially responsible for the condition they were in. Now, as he went on to Jerusalem, all along the way, he is told what awaits him there. But nowhere do I find that a roadblock was put up and forbade him to go to Jerusalem. He was just told what he was going to encounter, what awaited him there. Now, when he wanted on his second missionary journey to go down into the province of Asia where he did, I think, his greatest work in Ephesus later on. The Spirit of God put up a roadblock, said you can't go there, and Paul didn't go at that time. And he then attempted to go by Thynia, and again the Spirit of God put up a roadblock, says you can't go that direction. So that Paul, when he went to Jerusalem, there was no roadblock put up to keep him from going. He was just told what would happen. Then the reason that I believe that he was in the will of God and all of that, because it was that means that got him before kings and finally brought him to Rome, by the way, at the expense of the Roman government. No church had to raise money to send him on his missionary journey. Roman government took him there as a prisoner. And when he wrote his epitaph in 2 Timothy, Paul says, I have finished my course. Now, what he really is saying is, I've touched all the bases. And I think that Paul went to Jerusalem. And if that was out of the will of God, he could never have said, I finished my course. He finished his course. He touched all the bases. So I believe that Paul was in the will of God when he went to Jerusalem. Moving on, we come now to a question from a listener in Austin, Texas, who writes, Are there any translations of the Bible, besides the King James Version, that you recommend to the average lay reader? In what way do you feel I might be harmed in the use of a more modern translation? In reference to translations that I would recommend, I do recommend the American Standard of 19.1. I feel that that actually has made some corrections that need to be made in the King James, of course. No translation is perfect by any means. Now, I do not believe that any of these new translations are going to hurt you very much unless you rest entirely in one of them. And there are a great many people today that take the living Bible as if it is the living Bible, which it is not, of course. And it was all a paraphrased Bible. The copy that I have that was sent to me by Mr. Ken Taylor that is numbered and autographed, 
It's called a paraphrased Bible. Well, I buy that because that means it's not a translation, but actually an interpretation. And I have right here on my shelf where I'm sitting in my study here, I'm not going to take time to count them, but I think there's probably about 15 or 20 different translations up there. I have at home another 15 or 20 in my study there. I have them all. (laughs) I gather these translations, and many times when I am considering a certain passage of Scripture, I like to go up and take down maybe a half a dozen of them and see how they translated a certain word. And I find that they're not very helpful. There are places they are very helpful. Now, I think, uh, let me just use an illustration. Phillips has his translation of Galatians, the sixth chapter, where Paul says, every man must bear his own burden. Now, Phillips translates that like this. Every man must shoulder his own pack. Now, may I say to you, that's a lousy translation, but it is a magnificent interpretation. That is good as an interpretation, but don't try to pass it off as a translation. It just doesn't happen to be a translation. Now, translation is to take words out of one language put them in another language with a word of equal value. In other words, you don't take nouns and translate them as adjectives. If you do, you've lowered the value of that. And that's the reason that when Dr. Goodspeed did his first translation of the New Testament, translation so-called, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was divine. He didn't say God. Now, in the original, it's theos, it's a noun. He translated it by an adjective. Now, when you translate a noun by an adjective, you weaken it. And he definitely weakened it. Why? He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. Now, that's the reason I say you have to beware of translations because the theology and the view of the translators today is bound to get into the translation. Now, somebody says, well, didn't it get into the lives of the man that did the King James? Certainly did. But you see, in that day, they didn't have the controversies that we have today. For instance, on prophecy, there was no controversy about it at all. And there was no controversy about the person of Christ at that time. So that you do get a translation by men who are more unbiased than any than you could get today then those men had time to work on it. They lived in an age when things weren't moving as fast as they do today. I marvel at the speed that they're doing these translations today. I just don't believe you can do it like that. I don't care who you are, how smart you are, and I'm not sure our boys today are quite as smart as some of the scholars of the past have been. They haven't had time to be mellowed, be seasoned as the men of the past have been. And that's the reason that I take the position that I do. And I think that the King James is written in very magnificent language. It's written in a reverent language. And some of this modern stuff is not reverent at all. And I do think the Word of God should be given a reverent place. And these are some of the things, but 
These translations won't hurt you. Look at them. But don't call them translations as I have. Call them interpretations. They may give you a sidelight, just like the one I gave you on Phillips. I think that's a marvelous sidelight, but it's certainly not a translation. And that's the thing I feel about many of these today. Somebody says, well, I can understand it. What do you mean you can understand it better? You're not really getting the Word of God in many places by any means. Now, in the King James, it's closer to the literal. And then there's another feature that I'd like to mention, and this is important. Shakespeare wrote in the same kind of language that the King James is in, good Queen Bess's language. And no one today, as far as I know, are tempting to change Shakespeare. The thing is, they had tried, I know, over in England at Stratford at the theater there to put it in modern dress. And I understand over half of the audience got up and walked out. They don't even want Shakespeare in modern dress, let alone change the language. What happens is these men study it and study it and work with it and work with it until they are able, by their intonation, by their very inflection of the voice, to bring out the meaning. Now, the problem today is that a preacher gets up Sunday morning and reads his passage of Scripture, and he hasn't read it beforehand at all. I go to churches many times, and the assistant pastor or the Christian ed director, he says to me, Dr. McGee, what Scripture do you want me to read this morning? And I used to give him the passage, and he'd say, are there any big words in it? Now, the man hasn't even looked at it. He doesn't even know what it is. But he's going to get up before a congregation, sometimes of a 1,000 to 2,000 people, to read it. I think that's sinful. As Dr. McGee has indicated, he would recommend the King James Version, of course, but also the American Standard Version of 1901. And then later in his life, Dr. McGee also came to accept the New King James Version as he believed that it maintains the reverence and majesty of the King James Version. Now, our final question of the day comes from a listener in Buchanan, Michigan. He says, I recently heard a woman say, when asked if her husband was a Christian, that he was, but not a born-again Christian. Are there two classes of Christians, born-again and not born-again? Well, may I say to you, I think that lady was attempting to hedge for her husband. She made a statement that he was a Christian, and then as an afterthought, There's a doubt in her mind that he is. And so she added, he's not a born-again Christian, which, of course, means he's not a Christian at all. There's only one class of Christians, and that is born-again Christians. John made that very clear. He says, to as many as received him, that is, the Lord Jesus, to them gave he the power, the exousion power, the authority to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than just simply believe in his name. Now, you become a born-again son of God, baptized by the Spirit by being put in the body of believers the minute you trust Christ. Now, anything else or anything short of that is not a Christian. We today have a country now that's filled with real confusion, not only by the cults, 
But today there are a group of men that are passing as evangelicals, and that covers a multitude of sins. And some of these men very candidly say they never speak on controversy. All they do is say sweet, nice, lovely things. And if you can just get your thinking right and become positive in your thinking and think sweet thoughts and know that everything's going to work out all right and you can be breezy, bright, and brotherly, then you are a Christian. You're not a Christian because of that. That's not Christianity. And today, there is a false gospel that's being preached in the name of Christ because they use his name. It's sort of a cliche, an open sesame, and it does not at all mean that people that go that route are saved. And I think that is so deceitful, it's making a lot of people feel good about themselves. Now, there is a psychological approach, and by the way, that one is psychological, but doesn't call itself. But there is a psychological approach today that you should think well of yourself. May I say to you that you'll never become a Christian by thinking well of yourself. When you find out that you're a lost sinner and come under conviction, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus said he was going to send him in the world, and when he came, he would convict the world of sin. What kind of sin? Well, I think the sin of rejecting Christ, the sin of being alienated from God. And the only way that you can come to God is through Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he puts his hand in the hand of a holy God and his other hand in the hand of the sinner and brings them together when that sinner comes under conviction and is saved. Therefore, today, there is in the name of evangelical. Anything is being preached and is called evangelical faith. That, as I've said, is a name that covers a multitude of sins. It absolutely is not, and somebody needs to say that today. And I just don't know anybody that's as willing to say it as I am. And I do say it. I say it very carefully, but I say it very clearly that the only way that you can become a Son of God, a Christian, a born-again Christian, is to come as a sinner to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as a Savior from your sin. That's the only way. There's no other way to come to Christ except that way. And so that type of talk of that woman, you can rather appreciate her position. She's married to an unsaved man and she's hedging and covering up for him and for her mistake of marrying an unsaved man. So she makes that distinction, and there are a great many people that are like that. Our churches are filled today with unsaved people. They're nice guys and gals. They try to be very sweet, and they talk a great deal today about love. I had breakfast with a layman that was telling me about his pastor, They've had a great deal of problems and trouble in that church. And he came in preaching love, 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 and that he was going to be practical, you know, that they'd had doctrine. Now 
they're going to get the real article. Well, the interesting thing is that bitterness arose and bitterness in this man's heart. It's tragic indeed. My friend, you have to come to Christ as a sinner in order to be saved. He came into the world, he said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom. He's a ransom. He paid a price. He paid the penalty for your sins. And you can't come to him any other way. You just can't come to him any other way than that. This may be a perfect time to ask if you've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Have you received the gift of salvation that he gives to those who believe he died for their sins? If you'd like more information on God's plan of salvation for your life, then we'd like to send you some helpful information in the form of our salvation packet. To receive yours, you can call us anytime leave a voicemail request along with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. For those of you who are interested, we have today's broadcast available on an individual CD. If you'd like to purchase a copy for yourself, a friend, or a family member, you can do so when you call one of our helpful service operators. Each week, Dr. McGee's Bible study can be heard on the Through the Bible radio broadcast aired on this station. We'll continue his five-year journey this week as we systematically go through the whole Word of God, covering every book and chapter of the Bible. So if you're a serious student of the Bible, then you'll want to be placed on our mailing list for notes and outlines and our monthly newsletter. To contact our offices for the Salvation Packet or to ask to be added to the mailing list or to express your interest in the ongoing worldwide work of Through the Bible, call 1-800-65-BIBLE. Do it Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. You can always write to Questions and Answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C6B1, or find us online at ttb.org. Now we leave you with this prayer that our God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus, made it home. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.